This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Anthony Doerr, author of the short story collections Memory Wall and The Shell Collector, a memoir, Four Seasons in Rome, and novels about grace and all the light we cannot see. He has won numerous prizes, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Rome Prize, and a National Magazine Award for fiction. His latest novel, All the Light We Cannot See, is set in World War II and interweaves the lives of a young blind French girl, Marie, and an orphan German boy, Werner, who is recruited into a military academy for Hitler Youth. The two young protagonists' worlds collide as the novel builds towards its conclusion. We began the interview talking about Dorr's early writing life. He has always kept a journal, and I asked what sort of things he wrote about and if that led him to writing fiction. Great question. I have always, I still keep it. Um, and it, it was never, or it's rarely, to be more accurate, a place where I worked out my own feelings. You know, occasionally it would be like, oh, Jamie broke up with me and I'm devastated. You know, occasionally you do turn to it for kind of therapy. But most of the time, I would be at peace and I would be looking out and using it as a way to just practice translating the world into language. Still, the times I'm using my notebook the most is, are when I'm traveling, when I'm outside of the familiar things that I see every day. And I feel like then my eyes are a lot sharper, especially if you're in a place where they aren't speaking English, you know, and you're um, paying a lot more attention to the world. Then I find myself turning the notebook a lot. Really, a lot of my uh, third book, which is a little memoir called Four Seasons in Rome, came out of the notebooks that I kept while I just walked around Rome and journaled. So, you know, I'll describe people's shoes, I'll describe buildings or the way light falls through trees or what some guy is doing with his glasses or, um, you know, the way somebody's sitting in an airport or, um, you know, even the way I feel when a plane is taking off. A lot of those things I'll later cannibalize and use in my fiction. I had a short story called The Hunter's Wife that opens with a man leaving Montana for the first time on an airplane. And I think the first couple of paragraphs are really me on an airplane going to Chicago. And I pulled those out of my journal probably two years after I had written them, not knowing that they would end up in fiction, you know. And what role has the natural world played in your life, in your childhood? I mean, I've noticed in this book, there's a lot of references to the natural world and this sort of blending of science and art. And I'm just curious about how, what you think, if that's an accurate description of your work and how that has blended for you in your life. Um, Yeah, thanks. Of course it's accurate. Um, I was outside all the time as a kid. I'm kind of grateful that I grew up in the pre-video game era. I think my kids are a little more challenged. We, they, you know, we're in Idaho. They love to be outside. They're great skiers, but we still have to kind of wrench them away from the screen. And I didn't really have to worry about that. I was outside rain or shine every day. And my mom was a science teacher, and she just helped learning never feel like learning. I mean, just exploring curiosity was something I wanted to do, and she didn't make it feel like school, you know? I caught lots of creatures, I had an aquarium in my room, and grew tadpoles into frogs, and, you know, was always out catching moths and fireflies, and uh, all the, the the happiness and connection that I felt with the with really the forest around our house growing up has 
stayed with me. That's still where I go when I get stressed out or really almost every day I somehow have to get out there and kind of bathe in natural light or else I get stressed. So for me, in my work, I feel like I'm usually imbuing characters with with feelings I have and with attachments I have. So yeah, in the new book, um, Marie and Werner, in a lot of ways, are both connected to science and nature. Marie loves snails. Werner's in love with light, and in particular, radio. And those are all fascinations that I have and, and had as a boy. What do you think the relationship is between art and science and wonder? Uh, I think they're both ways of asking why we're here. I don't see... It is entirely useful to separate the science building and the liberal arts building on college campuses, I think. You know, we get this really, really short, brief period of time, uh, maybe 80 years, if you're fit and lucky and have Western medicine, maybe you can make it 90 years on Earth. And that's really just a finger snap um, in terms of geologic time, in terms of cosmological time. And I want to try to learn as much as I can about this place we're on while we're here. So I think I can do that through reading Nabokov or Annie Dillard or Cormac McCarthy or Marilyn Robinson as much as I can by reading Darwin or Copernicus or watching Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson with my boys like I did last night. You know, I think we all owe it to ourselves to... um, try to understand what this place is. And I think the best science embraces mystery and the best fiction, the best storytelling embraces mystery. So I don't see them as entirely separate pursuits. I see see them as something to try uh, to do every day. Given this, how did you begin All the Light We Cannot See? How did the narrative for that enter your world? Because there's always... You know, you keep a journal, so there's so many things you probably think about every day. What brought you to a blind girl in World War II, the story of her and Werner, who was interested in science and radio, and it sort of mainly goes back and forth between their two stories? You know, it does tie into your question about keeping a diary. Um, The easy answer is I was on a train at Princeton for a year. I had a fellowship there going to New York City, like an hour train ride to see my publisher, and the guy in the seat in front of me was on his cell phone. We're going into Penn Station, so we're like already underground. There's steel and concrete above us, and his call dropped. And rather than, you know, acting as any sane person would be like, well, that was still pretty cool that I was going 30 miles an hour and having a conversation, he got kind of angry and was like, oh, stupid phone, and he's hitting his phone, and you know, it's sort of funny, but I, I had my notebook in my lap and had uh, just finished a novel and was kind of reaching around for new ideas. And I thought, you know, why don't I try to write something that reminds a reader of the miracle of using light, using packets of information sent on electromagnetic waves at the speed of light between towers. Why don't I write something that reminds us of the miracle of that, you know, that tries to convey the power of hearing the voice of a stranger in your head. Now, something, you know, humans could not do for thousands and thousands of generations. Uh, you know, such a new magic to us, and already we're getting used to it. So 
uh, that night I started a story in which a girl reads a story to a boy over a radio. And I kind of conceived of the boy as trapped, and I conceived of the girl as blind. I don't really know why exactly. I thought of her kind of reading a story in Braille. I didn't know what story it was. I didn't know the circumstances in their entrapment. It took me a whole year, really, to get them narrowed down into World War II. That's when I was on book tour in France and started to settle into some of those locations and started thinking, okay, maybe I've got this boy trapped because of bombardment and war, and uh, maybe I put them on kind of opposite sides of this conflict, one German and one French, and then I started playing more. You know, these all, all of my... Stories. And often with my students, too, I have to dispel the notion that literature comes like this light bulb over the head, you know, it's like, oh, God is speaking. All I have to do is write it down. You know, for me, it just comes really slowly, draft after draft. You have to try to understand who these people are. And day after day, hopefully, the focus just gets a little sharper each day as you start clawing through these clunky sentences. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Anthony Doerr, author of the novel All the Light We Cannot See. So this novel took you 10 years to write. Tell me about why it took so long. Uh, I wrote two books as procrastination from this novel. Um, All the Light We Cannot See is complicated. Two novels in one because it follows Werner and Marie and then so I'm kind of writing two separate novels about World War II since they don't meet until, you know, late, late in the book. And then I had to figure out how to break these two novels into pieces and pair them so that they're braided correctly. So the structure was a big problem for me. You know, I kept wondering why I was making things so difficult for myself, you know, to lay out all these color-coded parts on the floor of the office. And anyway, and then, yeah, research, of course. I went to Europe three separate times. You know, I didn't know much about how the Atlantic Wall was fortified. I didn't know much about Saint-Malo. I couldn't read French, and half of my sources were in French. And, um, you know, I had to try to understand what level of indoctrination was going on in Nazi Germany and how it affected poor children. And, and then there's the added hurdle of historical fiction in which every time you have a character turn to her dresser or her kitchen table, you don't. You can't readily, or I couldn't, immediately imagine what would have been on that kitchen table. You know, if I said something in 2014 in Aspen, I can describe the cars and the pharmacy and the gondola because I've seen them. But, you know, if you're trying to write about Paris in 1934, it's a little trickier. You know, you just have to rely on imagination and research and photographs and time, really, a lot of times. I mean, there's so many interesting things about it, but it's not a violent book. I mean, it could you could focus on the war and have a lot of violence. And you had you definitely had violence, but that wasn't the focus. And I'm wondering if you thought about that when you were writing it and trying to put a certain sort of angle on a World War II story. Part of the reason the book took so long is that there are so many stories about World War II. And as a fiction writer, you're never going to surpass, particularly the Holocaust, the stories of survivors. Um, you, know, you, you can't write a better book than the hundreds of books that had been written already. Um, so a lot of it was trying to find my way to a new kind of narrative. And I felt like the only way I knew how to do that was to invest as, as fully as I could in the individuality of these two humans I was creating. And I thought also maybe children were, were a way in, you know, trying to say, you know, here's the experience of two children. 
And I started to tell myself it might be okay to try to ask the reader to invest as completely in Werner's story as in Marie's. Marie is a a girl in an occupied territory whose uncle gets involved in the resistance. That's a story maybe we've seen a few times before, and we can readily empathize with her situation. But it's a lot harder, at least on the surface, to try to imagine your way into the head of a kid who's sucked up into the machinery of the Nazi party. That took some time, and I, I hope that what's different about this story is that, yeah, it is hopeful. I mean, the reader's already bringing so much darkness in with her. She knows about the Holocaust, that any you know, reader above 18 in the Western world will know about that. So I didn't feel like I had to focus on that. I felt like that's a darkness that's present in the reader's mind and behind the text, and that I could try to just shine these, these two little candles of these two characters and kind of move them across this backdrop of darkness, and that hopefully the contrast would make the those flames shine that much brighter. Do you think about the reader when you're writing and what sort of notions they have when they come to your work? Oh my gosh, yes, all the time. I mean, every from every stage, when you're composing to drafting, yeah, you have to think about the reader. I mean, there might be a stage when you can see Marie's house, clearly, but the reader can't. The reader has no idea what this picture. So, I mean, I think of the best novelists are just committing these acts of generosity all the time toward the reader, like, here's this, here's this, here's this. Like, I'm so aware of how many other books are out there, and I um, I want to make sure my sentences are as clean as possible, and my uh, story is compelling, and, you know, yeah, I'm thinking about the reader all the time. And I was wondering, you know, one of the things I think a lot about with World War II is there's so few people left now who were witnesses to World War II. It's a dwindling population. And I think that the story of war is so different when there's survivors and eyewitnesses versus when there's not anymore. And I wondered if you ever thought about that and the role of your story in... Yes, of course. At the very end of the book, I have a line. It's something like every hour someone for whom the war with memory falls out of the world. Um, I feel like this is this particular time for World War II in which every day we lose thousands of people who remember it. And it's becoming more something of history and less of memory. And that maybe opens up possibilities for novelists, but it's also a very dangerous time. You know, I see the way my kids, who are 10, um, the way they are learning about the war from silly things like the History Channel or video games, you know, the weaker programming tends to deliver it. Even politicians, they deliver it as a very straightforward narrative of good versus evil, in which, you know, all the American soldiers are these, you know, blonde saviors coming in on the beaches, and, you know, all the um, French were meek and grateful, and all the Germans were evil. And um, I think, you know, there was no normal experience for any one person in the war. And we owe it to ourselves and to our um, ancestors to tell truthful, try to tell truthful stories about individuals during that time. And do you feel some sort of moral, political, or 
any other sort of responsibility as a literary writer, not necessarily only with this, but with everything you write? Yes, of course, and particularly with this. I mean, for me, addressing the Holocaust, trying to figure out how, um, you know, how it would fit into the book um, was complicated, really difficult morally for me, because I wanted to pay respects to all of the stories, the better, you know, nonfiction stories that had been written about it, and at the same time, try to make something new. So, yeah, and then, of course, I feel, I mean, I feel like there's more responsibility not to use cliche and not to let your readers sleepwalk through any sentence, any story. Yeah, and, you know, all of my work in some degree or another has some kind of environmental consciousness deep inside of it, you know, trying to get the reader to remember the miracles of this planet we're on. And, you know, my work tends to be much more reverent and much less ironic than the work of a lot of my friends, peers who are writers. So you're trying to sort of bring maybe awe and the magical quality of just being alive to the page. Yes, 100%. I mean, that's why I got interested in writing and reading, this incredible ability that books have to connect you to another person, you know, you just feel less alone you know, that when you're reading whatever, Catcher in the Rye, or before that, you're reading Chronicles of Narnia, and you're, like, connected to these kids that never existed, and they only exist in these little black marks on a white page, you know, that kind of magic, you feel less alone. I remember reading, like, Johnny Tremaine and learning that he fell asleep by trying to match his breathing with the boy in the bed next to him, you know, trying that out. (laughs) Like Those were as much friends to me as real people were friends. You know, that's that's something our art offers that even the best filmmaking cannot, this intense immersion into another person's consciousness. I think the, the incredible fortune of being at this one moment on Earth being alive. I don't believe in reincarnation. I think you get one trip. That's what I'm trying to get through in really all my work. Say, you know, look at this place and try to take care of it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Anthony Doerr, author of the short story collections Memory Wall and The Shell Collector and novels about grace and all the light we cannot see. I wanted to ask you what was different for you about writing a short story versus a novel. I'm rereading what I've got all the time. And in a short story, the great pleasure of it is if you have five or six hours to get to work, I can usually read through almost everything or everything I've written so far in that project before I start adding things or changing things, you know, and I'm changing things all along as I read through it. And in a novel, it quickly becomes impossible. You know, there are sections that you wrote years before, and I was a different person. You know, I had, like, toddlers when I was writing some of this novel. And then, you know, suddenly they're seven, and you go back, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot about these chapters. i got to really, you know, try to read them all together to make the tone feel all of one. So the endurance of the novel for me is harder in that if you need, especially towards the end, you need these 10, 11-hour days where you're just going through as much of it as you can. This book has, um, not only does it have all these chapters, but it has 13 books inside of it, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And, um, uh, you know, for sure, I would try to read it through the entire book, book one or book 14, book 12, um, to 
try to get, you know, it to feel whole, make it feel out of a piece, and make sure I'm not repeating myself, make sure it has good momentum, you know, all those things you're trying to do for the novel. It just, and it, the scale is larger. So you you have mentioned other authors, and I'm just wondering if you could select a passage from an author that spoke to you as a writer or influenced you. I immediately pulled Stephen Milhauser's Martin Dressler off the shelf. It's from the very end of the novel. Um, this is a pretty famous novel. Um, it's called Martin Dressler, The Tale of an American Dreamer. It's about a series of more and more almost supernatural hotels that... Um, this character, Martin Drexler, designs and builds in a, in New York City. It's really a story about the American dream. And this is at the very end of the novel, and he built this elaborate hotel called the Grand Cosmo, and it's unfortunately kind of a failure, at least a commercial failure. And indeed, he was tired, so tired that he could barely lift his head, though at the same time he felt intensely alert. The Grand Cosmo would soon pass away. Even now, it was fading, becoming dreamlike as he watched. Already he could hear it falling, falling like white snow. The three women were assigned, demon women summoned up from deepest dream, for a building was a dream, a dream made stone, the dream lurking in the stone, so that the stone wasn't stone only, but dream, more dream than stone, dream stone, and dream steel, forever unlasting. Friendly powers had led him along dark paths of dream. They had been good to him. To him, Martin Dressler, son of Otto Dressler, seller of cigars and tobacco. For really, he had traveled a long way since the days when he rolled out old Tecumse into the warm shade. For he had done as he liked. He had gone his own way, built his castle in the air. And if in the end he had dreamed the wrong dream, the dream that others didn't wish to enter, then that was the way of dreams. It was only to be expected. He had no desire to have dreamt otherwise. And as Martin in his chair sat deeply asleep and yet entirely awake, for so it seemed to him as Martin in his dream chair slipped in and out of dream thoughts that were the clear thoughts of day, he became aware of something just out of reach of his mind, something that needed attending to. And it came to him, a man, one of the actors whom he had noticed from the beginning, a man whom he had picked out without giving him much thought, simply nodding to him now and then, one actor among among others. Maybe it was the full brown mustache, maybe it was the erect posture or some gesture of the hand. What had struck him was the resemblance, slight to be sure, between himself and that stranger. But now in his dream waking, in his sleep alertness, he seemed to grasp the slippery meaning of the man, who until this night had been scarcely in his thoughts at all. So tell me why you picked this passage. It's crazy, right? He said he uses the word dream like 53 times in there. Uh, the, the thing that sticks with me forever since I read this novel is that line, if in the end he had dreamed the wrong dream, the dream that others didn't wish to enter, then that was the way of dreams. It was only to be expected. He had no desire to have dreamt otherwise. You know, it's it's a lesson, I think, for artists. When he's saying what what... What really I think Stephen Milhauser is saying there is, I'm going to write, ultimately, the, the novel I have to write. I'm going to do it as well and as carefully as I can, but if others don't wish to enter it, if it's not going to be a commercial success, you have to be okay with that. You know, you can't reach for commercial success. It becomes great, but if people don't wish to enter enter that dream, uh, you know, that's okay. You have to be okay with having dreamt it. 
really ties back with what I was trying to say earlier in that the art is in the attempt. You know, the art is in the making of something, not in the reception of it. I'm wondering if you can read a short passage from something you wrote that maybe it was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at. You asked me if, uh, yeah, if there was one that was trickier that changed a ton. Um, and so I'll try to, since we've been talking about research especially, I'm trying to give you a sense of like how many days of research kind of went into this long paragraph. This is on page 139 of All the Light We Cannot See. And this is Werner's, um, he's, he's just arrived at a, uh, it's a paramilitary school meant for gifted youth. Um, but it has a much more sinister agenda, which he maybe suspects but doesn't want to suspect at this point. The star-flooded nights, the dew-soaked dawns, the hushed ambulatories, the enforced asceticism. Never has Werner felt part of something so single-minded. Never has he felt such a hunger to be long. In the rows of dormitories are cadets who talk of alpine skiing, of duels, of jazz clubs, and governesses, and boar hunting, boys who employ curse words with virtuosic skill, and boys who talk about cigarettes named for cinema stars, boys who speak of telephoning the colonel, and boys who have baronesses for mothers. There are boys who have been admitted not because they are good at anything in particular, but because their fathers work for ministries. And the way they talk, one mustn't expect figs from thistles. I'd pollinate her in a blink, bear up and funk it, boys. There are cadets who do everything right, perfect posture, expert marksmanship, boots polished so perfectly that they reflect clouds. There are cadets who have skin like butter and irises like sapphires and ultrafine networks of blue veins laced across the backs of their hands. For now, though, beneath the whip of the administration, they are all the same, all Yogumana. They hustle through the gates together, gulp fried eggs in the refectory together, march across the quadrangle, perform roll call, salute the colors, shoot rifles, run, bathe, and suffer together. They are each a mound of clay, and the potter that is the portly, shiny-faced commandant is throwing 400 identical pots. Tell me about why you chose this one. Oh, gosh, just because, you know, I spent so much time reading about these schools, which were a real thing, you know, called the Annapolis schools, um, and you know, reading, trying to find memoirs from men who had, you know, survived and lived through them and looking at photographs and uh, trying to imagine what it would be like for Werner in those first days there when he came from such an underprivileged background to a place where many of his classmates would have had wealthy lives. And uh, Yeah, it's just the kind of paragraph that took me a long time to assemble. Are you happy with it now? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Just as I was reading, I'm like, oh, I used perfectly twice here. Uh, you know, you just always want to change. For me, it's just important to keep making new stuff. Otherwise, you'll just focus on the old stuff too much. So where do you write? Uh, where I am talking to you from right now. I'm in the basement of an old Carnegie library in Boise, Idaho. It's a tiny room, three little windows, costs $150 a month. It's like a mile from my house. I can ride my bike here. and I come here and work. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I go skiing in the winter or mountain biking in the summer. Or I wrestle with my kids upstairs. It's easy to get away from writing. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. She's a good reader? She is a great reader. She's great. All of us have experienced stories 
you know, since we were kids, and uh, she is very good, like so many of us are, at just identifying where something is lacking, what's implausible, what feels out of rhythm, what feels not symmetrical. You know, she tells me when she is or is not interested in things. She's very skilled at walking the tightrope between kind of cheerleader and critic. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, poorly. You generally just feel lousy <laughs> for a while. <laughs> and then you get up and try again. And what is your favorite word? Powder. Thank you, Anthony Dorr. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.